It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 49, Gideon and the 300, Part 1. In John chapter 14, Jesus was sitting down with the disciples in the most famous Passover meal before the cross. In this chapter, Jesus revealed so many things to the disciples that it was impossible for them to even understand at the time. But he says it all anyways, knowing the Holy Spirit would reveal all things to them later. In verse 21, he says these amazing words. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Check it out. Jesus himself said, He who loves me will be loved and my Father, and I will love him. And the King James, the actual language behind it, says, I will manifest myself to him. So it reads, I too will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas asked this question, so many ask in the next verse. John fourteen twenty two. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Uh, The answer to Judas' question was anyone. Anyone who loves God, God will receive a manifestation of his love in return. John 14, and full of so many promises, one could study it for years and encounter God in every verse. To be clear, Jesus goes on to speak of the Holy Spirit coming into and living within every believer as this manifestation, but also it implies so many more manifestations of his person, likeness, and experience with Jesus. In the account of Gideon, we believe Jesus, the angel of the Lord himself, stepped down into time and space of mankind and manifested himself to encourage and bring about a very personal hero for Israel, Gideon. Judges 6, 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. It did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the number and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. 
Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. All right, Israel's been invaded by two people groups and other eastern peoples. The people groups are Midian, the same Midian that Moses ran off to prior to Exodus, and the same Midian that was punished in the Balaam affair. So these are old enemies for Israel, and there's a lot of past here, which have been harboring revenge to take out upon Israel. Now they found the hedge of protection removed from Israel. In addition, other eastern peoples joined them in pillaging Israel, as well as an age-old enemy, the Amalekites. This is the people group as well that attacked Israel in that scene when Moses raised his staff in the wilderness and Joshua fought for Israel. Considering the vast plunder that was looted by Israel in the Canaanite campaigns and the vast treasure that accumulated themselves in the times of prosperity, Israel was a prime target for invasion. Before we move on, we're going to refer to the invaders as the Midianites. But let's note that there are many other people groups here, considering like an allied invasion with many nations, which will have its own advantages, but will also have its disadvantages later, which we'll cover. This time, the Midianites had war camels, which appear to be an innovation for its era. And they're really just plunderers, unlike Eglon, who set up shop in Israel and collected tribute. Midianites, like it says, set on ravaging the land. They, in a way, remind me of the mafia here. They leave the Israelites until they produce their crops, and then they arrive at harvest time to take their share. But in this case, they're taking everything, plundering the land. But then they leave, and then they come back again at harvest time to to just reduce the land to, to anything that's left. Now the Israelites cried out to God, which is a key to Judges and part of the cycle of sin in Judges. Referring back to our timeline charts, northern Israel had been in Sisera and Jabin's hands for about 13 years when the Midianites invaded the south. The Midianites remained for about seven years, and during this time, the Midianites controlled the south while Jabin and Sisera controlled the north. I know it's fascinating to me that the invasions could have overlapped. Now there's another one of those clues that puts the accounts together. Judges 6, 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them before you and gave you the land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Now it says, God sent them a prophet. And the prophet showed up and declared a sharp, piercing word. The prophet's word was condemning and very sharp. Who do you think this prophet was? Well, as far as we know, there was only one alive from the Bible source at this time alone. And her name was Deborah. It actually sounds like her, quite direct and full of rebuke. And when I read it, I sense there was no one else who could have said these words. It even almost has the same sentence structure as her words to Barak. Here we go. Instantly, the account changes from a national perspective and focus to a very personal story. Instantly. It's that amazing aspect of the Bible we see over and over, that it's written to everyone in every man's book. 
without an interjection sentence. Keep up with me. The account goes very personal, full of character flaws, doubt, fully packed with Marvel relationship and wonder. It's Gideon. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joas the Abirizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, and he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And we have to park here. This is one of my favorite parts of the entire story. So Jesus, the angel of the Lord, comes and sits down under a tree by a wine press with his back to Gideon, as Gideon, whose name means hooer, like a worker of stone, and talks to him. Gideon doesn't have a clue who this guy is. He thinks it's just another Israelite coming up to chat with him. In fact, Josephus would say Jesus came in the form of a young man, and adding to it that he had a staff, he probably came in the form of a young shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd, coming to speak to his sheep who hear his voice. So here's my take. Jesus shows up in some form of surprise because Gideon just thinks he's another guy. And they have a conversation, but this is what Jesus says. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Oh, man. He didn't just say this. This is not just flippant words. Gideon's afraid for his life. And he is threshing wheat in a wine press and doing it the wrong way. Any stranger would consider him a coward. But instead, Jesus shows up and says, You mighty man of valor. It's incredible. It's the exact opposite of what your physical eyes see. So let's just stop here and talk about the basics, basics, basics of prophecy. This is one of the best examples of identity prophecy in the Bible. Jesus didn't start by saying here that he would save Israel. He just says, God is with you, you mighty man of valor. Speaking to his identity and purpose. It's general, but it's his calling. In 1 Corinthians 14, Apostle Paul states that we should all pursue the gift of prophecy. It's quite staggering to consider what it is saying, that we may all prophesy And we talked about this before, that spiritual gifts and prophecy are the lawful and allowed tapping into God's power. If one pursued this gift, one of the first places to start would be identity prophecy. It is the safest and possibly one of the most common forms of prophecy, to speak to a person's destiny by helping them to understand the uniqueness of God's creation that is in you to help a person to tap into the unique purposes and gifts tapped into each person. In fact, it's trapped into each person. I was told of a Bible college where the first assignment was to write down the 50 dreams in your heart, from everything from skydiving to writing a book. Take your time and see what God has placed in your heart. One of mine was to create this podcast. What God has put in you that needs to get out. And as long as your desires of the heart are sanctified and not sinful, He has placed these desires in your heart to bring fulfillment to you and to change the world around you. One of these things trapped in Gideon's heart was to be a warrior. And possibly no one, I mean no one, 
ever told him this or saw it before, but it was Jesus himself who revealed what was in his heart, that he was a mighty warrior. And I ask you, the listener, to do something different, steering away from our storyline for a minute here. Now that we've outlaid this simple concept of identity prophecy, it's now in your hands. I challenge the listeners to do just that. Find someone near you, or anyone near you, and ask for eyes to see. Ask God for eyes to see and ears to hear, and ask for something to encourage someone near you. If you're a husband or a wife, ask for a simple word of encouragement for your spouse, a father or mother for your children. What is God's eyes and thoughts towards this child? Sometimes it is the complete opposite of what you see in the natural. For example, a child suffering from being bullied at school may just be a warrior in God's eyes, just like Gideon, or an unloved friend may be seen by God as a treasure. What an encouraging word just to tell this person that God loves them, or that simply, I see you as an untapped treasure that just needs to be opened. One simple word opened the doors of destiny for Gideon. Now it's your turn. Open the doors for those around you with encouragement from heaven. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. So ask God questions about others around you to help unravel their gifts in front of them to open their eyes to future possibility. So now we go back to the account. Gideon has a conversation with the angel of the Lord. And considering his conversation, Jesus was not revealing his glory to him yet. I read a lot into their conversation. It appears Gideon is an extrovert and an external processor and quite a good communicator, even when he was speaking words of doubt. Judges 6.13 But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him, said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will shake down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. Gideon keeps Jesus waiting for a long time to get his goat, which he probably stole from his father, just guessing. Oh yes, he also had bread, and who knows how long he kept Jesus waiting. And at this point, I'm taking that Jesus is gradually beginning to reveal his glory. It even says he turned around, because Gideon was getting it slowly. But Gideon holds himself together so well, it amazes me. It makes me think that Gideon had a relationship with God before this, and he wasn't totally surprised to see a manifestation in front of him. Possibly Gideon was halfway prepared in his heart, though not altogether there. And the more I read the account, I notice that Gideon seems to have an authentic relationship with God. Though he speaks doubt and time again and again, 
He seems to understand relationship and has no problem communicating openly with God. And he freely speaks to God with no problem and freely hears his voice. This is quite a remarkable thing about Gideon. So far, Gideon asks for his first sign, and we will learn he asks a lot of God, and God in turn will ask a lot of him. Here is the first sign, Judges 6, 20. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so, and with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flamed from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. The angel of the Lord disappeared. Check out this sign. Fire comes from the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus is the rock, our salvation. What a cool sign that God was with Gideon. The fire came up and devoured the broth, the bread, and the meat, and then Jesus himself goes invisible to Gideon, son of Joash. So now it's freak out time for Gideon. He finally gets who this was. Judges 6.22 When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. There's a couple things from this section right here. All through the Old Testament, these guys think they're going to die when they see the angel of the Lord because they believe they are seeing God face to face. Because it states no one can see God face to face and not die. But what they miss is that this is not Father God. This is Jesus visiting his people. Also, I think it is fascinating that he built an altar and called it peace before he goes to war. See, God's peace is very different than the way we see peace. Now, Gideon's probably just went into processing mode, asking crazy questions to himself like, what just happened to me? How's this all going to happen? When the Lord speaks to him to fulfill his first act. Judges 6.25 That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down the father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of barrow to the Lord your God on top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than do it in the daytime. So notice something here is that Gideon first had to tear down the idols in his family. He had to do some house cleaning first and then go out to do his primary assignment. Also, I find it interesting that he did it by night. He really is a night owl, this guy. He seems to do a lot of things at night. But I just wonder if he would have had to tore down this idol and someone else would have done it if he didn't ask for that sign of God. There'll be a common thread in this account of Gideon asking for a sign and possibly because of this, God asking something extra of Gideon more than the original request that was to defeat the Midianites. In this case, since Gideon wanted a sign, the burning of the sacrifice, God most likely asked one of him to tear down his father's idol. Another thing is that God is tearing down the principality over this region by breaking down the idols set up by his, even his own father in this part of the tribe. The people's reaction was awful. They wanted to kill him, but his father defended them 
defended Gideon, showing his love of family was greater than his love for his worship of a false god. His response was, leave him alone, let Baal contend with him. Thus Gideon gained fame and a nickname, Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend with him. Next, it says the Midianites gathered and camped in the Jezreel Valley. Isn't this strange? Now we are looking at this, at our timeline again. It's the same year, possibly in the spring, Jabin and Sisera were defeated in this same valley. Could it be that the Midianites, now in the fall, decided to cross over into northern Israel because Jabin was defeated and they could see great spoil that could be gained in the north? But instead, Israel rallies. Judges 6.34 Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Eberizites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulon, Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Here's how it all starts. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The actual Hebrew reads, the Spirit of God put Gideon on like clothing. And I've heard it said that, even interpreted before, that God put him on like a glove. Amazing. Gideon would be the hand of God, and God would rescue Israel with his Gideon. It's a spectacular use of language, but it's such a picture of God's power at work through his people. All right, take note of these tribes. These are the northern tribes. Though Barak is never mentioned in this account, it does say that Naphtali and Zebulon rallied. Of course they did. They saw how God defeated Sisera and Jabin. They weren't too worried about the Midianites who just stepped foot over the Kishon River into northern Israel. Israel gathers around Gideon to do battle with the Midianites. And this is just fascinating what happens next. While Israel's collecting arms, and the fear of the Israelites was spreading through the land, Gideon goes to be alone with God. And take note here, it's not Joshua in one of those pep talks on courage or something like that, but instead Gideon decides to test God, or in his language, ask for a sign. What a funny guy this Gideon is. I have to admit, this is where most people have to come to grips with this guy. Who is Gideon? Is he a doubter? Or a hero? And I put this question out to long-term listener Mark V. from San Angelo, Texas, because I was struggling with it myself. You know, what perspective do you take with Gideon? Was Gideon a doubter or a hero? And I want to thank Mark for helping me to think differently about Gideon. Looking at Gideon from two perspectives as a doubter or a hero is just too limited. If we only look at this account from the perspective of humble Gideon, we fail to see it as God's redemptive story, and he's using this humble and flawed, doubting yet heroic Gideon to bring Israel freedom. With all of his character flaws, God was okay with him. In fact, God chose Gideon to reveal he could choose any man to fulfill his redemptive work. God really does love Gideon and has authentic relationship with him and brings freedom to Israel through him. Here is Gideon's request of God. Judges 6.36 Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. Alright, so we have to stop here. Here's the context of the sign. If, if, if. 
God has already said he was going to free Israel through Gideon. The specific of what follows astounds the links and depths that God went through to satisfy Gideon's doubt. Judges 6.37 Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And this is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Let's talk about the spiritual concept of asking for signs. A Christian should always be in the Lord's will, in geography and action, employment and heart, and we should always inquire and desire to please our Heavenly Father so the will of God is essential to our fulfilling our purpose. Asking for confirmation of God's will is good. It's essential to the Christian walk. It's not wrong to confirm the will of God. We desire to do God's will, and sometimes understanding His will is a challenge. So we wait and listen, and sometimes His will is hard to understand, and we need confirmations of God's will. It just has to be in the right context. The Pharisees asked for a sign, but a wonder was in front of them, the Messiah himself. They ignored all the previous miracles and prophecies about him because their heart was hard. Mary and Zechariah in, in the New Testament were encountered by the angel Gabriel. They responded to him with a similar question. One lost his speech for nine months and the other was blessed. All through the Bible there are testings and signs and inquiries with God. The key is the heart. What is the spirit of the question? Is it doubt or is it wonder? Zechariah doubted God fulfilling him having a baby at his old age. Mary wondered how she could become pregnant being a virgin. It has to be in the context of a relationship with Jesus that we ask for a sign, that we ask for confirmations. The more we read Gideon, he had a genuine relationship with God. Thus, Jesus visited him, or like before, he manifested himself to him. Now, Gideon asked God for two more signs. If I was to point to a problem with Gideon's request was that it was from the wrong spirit. It came from doubt. How many heroes so far didn't ask for signs, but Gideon did? He had doubt in his heart, but God was gracious to Gideon. He was unbelievably gracious to Gideon and reassured him from his doubt, and he'll do it again and again. So he asked for two signs. Now it's God's turn. I like to suggest that God was gracious and patient with Gideon, but due to his doubt, God actually asked more from Gideon in turn. Judges 7, 1 Early in the morning, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley of the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that their own strength has saved her. Authorize now to the people. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, 
while 10,000 remained. So note here, there's 10,000 that remain. How many soldiers defeated Jabin before? 10,000 from Zebulon and Naphtali. Barak could have been standing there with his men ready to fight, unafraid because he had already seen God in battle. Interesting enough, this is the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 23. Any fearful man should not go into battle. The reason is that his fear would poison the group into agreeing with their fear. Now we get to the second request of God, a thinning of the crowd, Judges 7, 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you. And if I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lap with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all of the other people go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. It is possibly the first trimming of the soldiers occurred, and then they marched some distance, and desiring refreshment, the troops stopped at a pool of water. Most of the men dropped to their knees and drank the water nearing exhaustion. It's interesting how God trimmed Gideon's army to 300. Pulling from Matthew Henry's commentary, God was weeding out the weak in the army and just pulling in only the 300 of the hardiest of the men that could endure long fatigue and those who would not be famished just from a short march. God was claiming only the strongest for his army. Diving to one's knees when the enemy was just over the hill revealed a weakness in character that one was not prepared for battle at any moment. So I, those are pretty good thoughts, and here's a couple others. And I'd like to add, could it be that this 300 were simply more prepared? They had wineskins full of water, and they didn't need to be exhausted when they arrived at the pool. God was rewarding the prepared with glory on the battlefield. Another possibility would be God was trimming the flock. No glory would be given to those who so easily dropped to their knees. Glory would only be given to the 300. In fact, they were so used, these 9,700 troops that were weeded out. In fact, they were so used to submitting and falling to their knees to whatever was available, little g's and sins of all kinds, that they even fell to their knees to drink from the waters. God was not going to share his glory with any who had bowed the knee to Baal and any other god but him. God had reserved these 300 for such a time as this to fulfill his deliverance and be his hand under the leadership of Gideon. We'll be concluding this story here of Gideon with his 300 men. He sent the other part of the army away and kept the provisions and trumpets of the rest of the army. In the next episode, we'll cover the attack by Gideon's commando force of 300 upon the 100,000-plus army of the Midianites. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I want to talk about the impact of Gideon's 300. The sheer count of Gideon and his 300 has impacted the world. Gideon's 300 will help save Israel from the oppression of the Midianites 
and will go down in history as one of God's great commando units in all of history. Helping me to explain this legacy, it has left on the world. This weekend, we were in Kansas City, Missouri for the weekend. And about to go to bed in our hotel room, I asked Janelle to hand me the Gideon's Bible that was next to the bed so I could read the Bible before bed. I turned into Judges chapter 6 and the account of Gideon, and I chewed on the word a little bit before I fell asleep. And I was so tired, I didn't even realize what I was reading about Gideon from the Gideon's Bible. All through history, the story of Gideon has challenged and moved many to imitate it. Locally here in my town, there's a Gideon's prayer meeting on Sunday morning at 5 a.m. There's a Gideon's army mission downtown, just to name a few, and there are so many more organizations with Gideon in its name or mission. The next morning, I realized the irony of it, and I pulled the Gideon's Bible again, and I turned to the front cover, and I read about the Gideon's Bible Foundation which is in 185 countries and has distributed millions of Bibles worldwide and is almost single-handedly responsible for the Bible in the drawer next to every bed in every hotel room in the United States. This is an excerpt from the inside cover of the Gideon's Bible. Who are the Gideons? This question is frequently asked by the readers of the scriptures so that the following information may be of interest. In the fall of 1898, two traveling men, strangers to each other, met in Wisconsin USA hotel room. Discovering each other to be a Christian, they held their evening devotions together. The Lord impressed upon them to the idea of forming an association of Christian traveling men, and the following July, these two men went the, with the third man for that purpose. After prayer together, the name of the Gideons was selected for the group. This name was taken from the story of Gideon in the 6th and 7th chapters of the Bible book of Judges. The leader of a small band of men, dedicated to the service of God, through whom God accomplished much for his people. It continues, The Gideons seek to spread the Bible, the word of God, and to encourage its use as widely as possible. The Lord has opened doors for the placement of his word among many strategic groups of the population, in places through which large and important streams of national life pass through day to day. Bibles are placed in the rooms of hotels and motels and in public places. Large New Testaments are placed in hotels and hospitals beside each bed. Individual copies of the New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs have given to the members of our armed forces, to the young people in the schools of the land, to nurses and to others. In recent years, the Lord has opened doors for similar work in many lands, so that the Gideon Association, organized with nationals, now exists in more than 185 countries. Isn't this what the Gideon's army is really all about? Taking a small number of determined believers to change the world and to bring about deliverance for themselves, others, and their nation. A small group of determined, faithful men and women pursuing freedom and faithfulness to God in order to help fulfill the Great Commission to bring the gospel to the farthest corners of the planet. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. 
Stay tuned next week as we continue the story of Gideon and the 300. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com.